um, to the podcast. Thank you very much for agreeing to do this, man. No worries, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I have li- a lot of questions to ask you. Um, and uh, yeah, I obviously thought I might as well ask you in a podcast format so other people get to also know uh, maybe just some of the hi- a little bit of your history and also just the history of Beachside Jiu-Jitsu. So um, we're located here inside of your new studio. Yep. Um, sc- school Academy. What's the, right, what's the right term for it? I've never known. Doesn't matter. You can call it a gym. You can call it a dojo. You can call it an academy. I basically call it a gym, but anything, facility, whatever you want to call it, whatever makes you feel happy. Is there a specific thing that changes what they are, like in jiu-jitsu? Um, I don't know. I guess it's kind of wh- wherever you go, someone will have it, like the head coach will have a different name for it, but I just call it a gym. It's a jiu-jitsu gym as far as I'm concerned. Okay. <laughs> Not to get too technical behind it all. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so... Look, uh, I think the first thing I want to start with is, um, like, I really like Beachside, and I think um, a lot of other people do. Like, you've done a really good job of cultivating, like, a like a really good community and a really good vibe. Um, I know that's kind of exactly kind of what you were aiming with it, but, yep. um, yeah, I think um, I think that's, like, a, a really good thing to note, and uh, it's definitely something that I think whenever I hear people who drop into your, to to your, to your facility and to your gym, they always mention that, so I guess... Um, yeah, maybe let's start with just finding out, like, what was it that you were setting out to do when you wanted to open up your own um, your own academy here in Adelaide? Yeah, well, um, I always had an I've had an academy prior to obviously having Beachside, but Beachside was the first uh, gym that I owned in Australia, and pretty much I just wanted to have an academy that trained like how I like to train, which is a really opening environment, um, friendly, everyone's welcome, but also you train hard, so. Um, as you're aware, I'm, probably, um, I'm fairly competition-oriented. I've competed most of the time that I spent doing jiu-jitsu. So I wanted an environment where you could train really hard and you could compete and you could get good, but also, like, uh, I guess a relaxed environment where, like, not that there's no rules here, but, like, you can, you know, you can come as much, as little as you want. Um, you can cross-train wherever you want. You don't have to ask me permission. If you're going to show up late because you've got work and other life commitments, which is, you know such a, a, a normal thing to have you don't have to like apologize for being late or like ask for permission to leave early i just wanted a really welcoming environment where you can train as hard as you want yeah uh what was uh what would have been the main differences obviously between having an academy here and one overseas in india um so the gym that i, I had in india i owned a gym called gardo mma so i originally just went over there for six months out of not boredom, but I just finished up a contract with a company that I was working for uh, with uh, learning and development. So I saw an ad on Facebook and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And I did that for six months working as the head coach of an MMA gym. I was Sorry, it was more of a fitness gym, but they had an MMA side as well. So I was teaching the grappling and a bit of the MMA there. And I just fell in love with the country and I decided to stay and open up my own academy, um, which was Gardo MMA. And uh, yeah, I did that for four years, I want to say. I can't even remember how long now. Time has just messed up my brain. And I can't figure out dates and times anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, very different. Um, the scene there's different. MMA is going crazy in India. Um, MMA more so than jiu-jitsu is a big thing there, but obviously grappling is a huge component of MMA. So I had most of my serious uh, guys were more MMA-oriented. Um, few got into a 1FC, which is really good, a few and brave. Um, so yeah, a lot of the guys there took it fairly seriously and got fairly far with their careers and a lot of them now are in their own gyms and stuff. Um, I can imagine, let maybe, <coughs> I guess let's let's backtrack first. Yes. Uh, all right, let's start with this. How did you, everybody comes into Jiu-Jitsu for different reasons. Yep. So was Jiu-Jitsu your first martial art or was it a different, like one of many? I did Taekwondo when I, if you can 
consider the version of Taekwondo I did a martial art um, when I was I think it was in primary school and a little bit of high school but man that was not very good um, I got to a black belt in it uh, but it was was that was that um like that and nothing that I say I'm trying to say to offend anyone in Taekwondo but was that like one of those black, black belts that people get in their teenage years or was that yes yeah, yeah. yeah it's like a Helmick Dojo okay that's what you're asking yeah, yeah I'm 100% <laughs> say it was very McDojo-esque um yeah. Gradings cost heaps, and you just kind of just showed up and you'd get built, sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, so that was my first foray into martial arts, and then uh, I would have been about 19 when I decided to take up to take up martial arts again. And what got me into jujitsu was I was just researching stuff. I'd seen Pride and all those sort of things, um, and I saw a highlight reel of Genki Sudo, a Japanese MMA fighter, doing uh, entering a submission grappling tournament. And it was the coolest video I think I've ever seen in my life. He just basically tears through a bunch of competition doing flying triangles, flying arm bars, like backflips. Just He made grappling so exciting and I'm like, that's the sport that I want to do. And that got me into jiu-jitsu. So I just researched local clubs in my area and never stopped. Okay, that's cool. Uh, this is bringing back lots of pride memories from back in the day. Um, were you into like mixed martial arts, like watching the MMA back in the day or not? Were yes, you, yeah, yeah, most definitely. Yeah. I uh, I can rem I can memorize most of the good. I, I've recently started watching Pride again, uh, all the old fights. Oh, nice. The good fights are good, but man, there are some really shocking ones. There's there. some crazy mismatches. Oh yeah, that I, I love the mismatches. They're <laughs> That's the best those are the ever, best yeah. fights, I know. <laughs> but get like these giant, hum humongous guys fighting like these tiny um, other guys, yeah. Uh, no, bring back the matchups like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's entertainment at the same time. As the yeah, sport. yeah, hundred percent. And um, I got that over there. It was more of a spectacle. I loved, I loved the the whole pride thing. And yeah, after that, are you more of a pride guy than a UFC guy? Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, yeah. Who was your favorite pride fighter? It changes because I like that. Like so, Vandalay Sylvia. Obviously, I loved him during his Pride career, but post Pride, not so much. I kind of fell off the wagon of him a little bit. That's like heaps of those Pride fighters, though. They were like legends in Pride, and yeah. then you see them come like drip into the UFC, and it just didn't translate for whatever hundreds of reasons that might have been. Shogun was an absolute beast. Watching him just soccer kick, soccer kick people's heads, <laughs> <laughs> uh, foot so the whole lot. He was he was a wild man. Um, Fights like, um, and it goes to show how like uh, how long some of these fighters' careers are. Because Overeem was like in Pride as a light heavyweight when he was like yep. cutting massive amounts, and he was great until he gassed because it was not meant to be a light heavyweight. Um, you had guys like um, uh, Rampage was. Uh, I don't like once again another one. I kind of don't like Rampage post his uh, Pride career, but in yep. Pride his fights with Vandalay were just insane. Yep. He's, he got, he's got that uh, epic video of him slamming... Who, who did Ricardo Arona. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He slammed his way out of a triangle. Yeah. And it's controversial, but I reckon it was the headbutt that carried him. Yeah, so yeah. on the way down, his head hit his that's jaw, right. and that's what yeah. knocked him out. But that yeah. was still sick. Ricardo yeah, Arona is one of the best grapplers of all time. I think his ADCC record is um, not having a point scored against him or something, something, oh, wow. something absurd like that. Yeah, Unreal. So you got into MMA, you find this clip... And then you decide to look up a like a local academy yep. to join. Uh, what academy was that? I joined ISO uh, ISO Health back in the day. Yep. Um, man, 2008. I yep. can definitely remember that. It was 2008 because it was the first states, and I'd only trained for like seven weeks. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna enter that competition because I entered. I started jujitsu to compete in a martial artist sport, not just to kind of practice it. If that makes sense. Yep. So I was all aboard, just jumping into the first competition. It was like seven weeks after I'd started, and I thought, yep, I'm gonna do the states. Nice. 
That's cool, man. Um, uh, I had a friend who I think probably joined at that same sort of time, Ray. Yep, yep. He, yep. he started at the same time. It's basically the same time. Me, him, uh, Limmy, who you know, another black belt coach here, Craig Jones and Lockie Warren and Adam Jones. Yeah, we all started at that same club around the exact same time. I want to say within like a matter of four months we all began. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, was that the only uh, Jiu-Jitsu Academy at the time? No. Um, man, let's test my memory. What? At the time, I think there were around three big academies. Yeah. Um, ISO Health. Um, there was a BTT here that was run by Gus Bomber. Okay. Yeah. Um, Gustavo Bomber. And there was SA BJJ, which was run by Mike Toyama and his father. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so that was the big, th ma the main three clubs in Adelaide back in 2008, I want to say. It's pretty cool to see how much it's expanded from yeah. what it was back in the day. Definitely. Uh, so when you started Jiu-Jitsu, did you take to it like everyone who obviously sticks with it? Were you obsessed with it straight away or did it take you a while to kind of like get the hang of it? So I'm uh, in all aspects of life. One of them, like I've got zero or 100%. I don't seem to be able to fall anywhere in between that. So I avoid doing tasks and I'm really lazy or I'm fully jumping in and immersing myself in something and I went 100% in with jujitsu straight away. I think from day one I was training like five or six days a week um, and I just pretty much trained as hard as I could and as much as I could whilst I was studying at university and yeah, so I, I'd say I, I pretty quickly got into it pretty full on. Yeah, yep. yeah, that's cool. What were you studying at uni? I did a Bachelor of Business and a double major in uh, HR and International Marketing. Okay. Yeah. Very different than jiu-jitsu. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Did you ever like work in that or did you go yeah. straight into jiu-jitsu? So I um, had a normal job for most of the time that I was training jiu-jitsu up until I uh, left for India. I was working as a lecturer sort of thing. I was working corporate learning and development. So I've always been a teacher, but obviously in separate fields. Um, and I think around 2016 is when I started teaching full-time. Yeah. 2015, 2016. So yep. I had a normal job, like I was doing like working nine to five and training in the morning and then training in the evening most days, yeah. Yep. Uh, what made you want to do that transition from that sort of like nine to five life to something different? Um, I never really uh, thought of it as a possibility to like sort of teach jiu-jitsu full-time as a job uh, until I started getting a little bit better, uh, getting like, you know, to brown belt, winning a few things like the nationals or states. Like, oh, maybe I could make a career in this. I really love the sport and um. I got the opportunity to teach. I was teaching part-time and I realized pretty quickly that I enjoy this more than anything else. So I made it my goal to make it financially viable for me to transition from full-time work to teaching full-time, yeah. Yep, and obviously that opportunity came up in India. Yep, that's where it started really being full-time and then the opportunity to create and open my own gym there. And then when I moved back here, it was a no-brainer. I used those skills and just started Beachside here. Yeah, what was that like to go and start a like, um, obviously, you would have had some background, like, with your university knowledge about business and that sort of stuff, but was it really challenging starting a business in a different country? Like, Yes, it was one of the hardest things that I've ever done. India is a wild place. I love it. I love the chaoticness of it. And that, that's a kind of exactly what I'm trying to allude to. Like, it seems like it'd be a bit more hectic to, it was to run something over there. It was a fucking nightmare to get it started. Uh, I just remember, uh, obviously, not being a local, just getting anything done was just... Uh, a migraine i i remember like some things were just so hard to get done i uh, delays um 
people telling me, yeah, it'll be done at this date here, and it wouldn't even be remotely getting started by then. So getting the whole thing launched was a nightmare, but once I got it up and running, it was sort of fairly self-sufficient, but is, yeah. Is somewhere like India, do they have more or less red tape than somewhere like Australia? Less red tape. Um, Australia obviously has a lot of red tape in terms of bureaucracy and stuff like yep. that, but more, um, how do I put it? Uh, more difficulty getting things done, like dealing with uh, contractors, dealing with suppliers, like everything's a yes, yes, yes. Um, it'll be done by this day and then... And it just doesn't get done. No. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so just navigating that was hard, getting my head around that here. Um, it's a lot... It might be harder to get that first step done, but yeah. once you do, it's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, when you decided to do like the MMA school, did you go, like, were you in business for yourself or with other people? Uh, it was me and I had uh, another friend that I was running it with as well, an investor. Um, so yeah, we, uh, we had, sorry, there was three of us and also the other coach there, a guy called Shiva, really good MMA fighter. Um, one of India's top rising talents. I think he came second in, uh, the AI MMAF world championship. So it's kind of like a amateur world championship. So okay, he, yep, he was doing nice. really well. Um. Yeah, so we uh we opened that after we were training at another facility together. When I decided, when we all decided to go out on our own, we decided to open that there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at the time, uh, you mentioned that MMA is really growing over there. How, was MMA growing at the time, or was it something that you kind of you guys were looking to just invest the effort into make people educated on it? Nah, it was. Gr what, by the time that I got there, and I want to say 2016, it was already like exploding because of the big names like Conor McGregor. Um, like you could pretty much ask anyone on the street in India who Conor McGregor was and they'd be able to tell you. So yep. um, once a few big names started getting popular, it really just exploded. I, I honestly think besides cricket, uh, besides cricket and hockey, MMA was like the most popular sport in all of India while I, there, while I was there. It was just, it just got huge. There was such a big support base. Um, there was like a, an event that we held uh, like a national event, like it was just like uh, two cages and it was like a knockout tournament. I think there was like 200 fights over two days and I couldn't even fathom that happening in Australia. So yeah, that just shows the scope of how many people wanted to train and compete in India. Wow, that's crazy. Uh, it's You just mentioned something that I think anyone who's newer to this maybe doesn't understand, but maybe five, six years ago, maybe seven, like MMA wasn't what it is now. Like, and like some of these people, like, you know, Conor McGregor, Ronda Rousey. Yep. Uh, you know, the first Forrest Griffin, Stephen Bonner fight, like, really put MMA on the map. Like, I remember when I first found out about it, I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen on YouTube. And I remember telling other people, and they're just like, why are you watching this? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, why would you not watch this? Yeah, it's, it's crazy how, how far it's come. Them first toughs were, they had some awesome fights. That, that's one of my favorite fights to this day still, that first Stefan Bonner versus yeah. Forrest Griffin fight. When Forrest won the title, who'd he beat? Um, he beat Rampage. Rampage, yeah. Yes, yeah. I, I was always like a huge fan of Forrest Griffin. I thought he was funny and just like a hell nice guy. Uh, so watching him like climb the ranks and get, he beat Shogun yeah, right after, that yeah, was his, that's what got him the title shot. He beat Shogun right after Shogun, I want to say won the heavy, light heavyweight, heavyweight, Grand, light heavyweight yeah. Grand Prix. And, um, uh, then, yeah, beat Rampage. That was insane. Yeah, oh, 100%. I'm not going to lie. I, I still am a big Forrest Griffin fan. I definitely <laughs> felt a little bit sad when I saw him get demolished by Anderson Silva. Oh, yeah. Listen, that happens. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was a crazy fight. I couldn't believe the mismatch of skill in that fight. Like, 
I know it's said a lot, but it was like Anderson Silva was in the Matrix. It literally he was, was yeah, like he was, he was reading everything Forrest was going to do before Forrest was going to do it. The way he dodged that three hit, like left, I right, know. left, and, and then just pulled boom. back, boom, straight to the face. But the problem with Anderson is he's an entertaining fighter when you have someone pushing forward against him as a counter striker. But like there was that phase where my God, he, he was fought. Uh, was it Charles Light? Uh, what's his name? The Brazilian. Yep. Um, yeah. It started with Patrick Cote. I reckon that fight was starting to get crap, and yeah. then um, Patrick injured his knee, which ended the fight. And then his fight with Damian Meyer was terrible. Um, yeah, that's I remember, right. Yeah, thinking, what is he doing? And I don't know if it was whether. Anderson Silva at that point just didn't really care or people weren't engaging with him, which is what his strength is. Yeah. Um, so if you don't sort of push forward, he doesn't really have an ability to counter-strike. But yeah, he was. there was a w- time that Anderson Silva was not entertaining to watch. Yeah. If you go back and watch some of his uh, older fights even, they're, they're great. I just re-watched this fight with Lee Murray. Yep. That's a great oh, fight. Oh, the guy, um, That's the, the diamond bank rob- thief. The yeah. bank robber, yeah. <laughs> From uh, the UK. <laughs> That's one of the most epic, um, I remember, was it reading the Matt Hughes book, biography, or something like that? Just That's talking a about terrible like that, book. That, is a, that book, I don't know who wrote that, but that makes Matt seem like a bigger dick than he already seemed like. I know, I don't know how someone didn't go, hey man, maybe don't publish this because it makes you look like a really, really bad person, but it was he, published. Maybe he's just enough of a dick that he just, he was like, no, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Some heavy narcissism. Yeah, but um, also, have you seen his fight when he gets heel-hooked by Ryo Chonan? Uh, um, Pride, An- yeah, 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 he yeah. does the yeah. flying, um, sorry, flying scissor takedown and then heel-hooks and that was, that's insane. Yeah, yeah. There were some, some crazy fights. I think, do you think one of the reasons why Pride had really exciting matchups was maybe some of this mat- mismatches, the mismatchesness in the opponents? Yeah, that and the rule set was wild. Um, the... It like the yellow and red card system, uh, system where it like sort of not force people, but like it sort of put more of a emphasis on fighting rather than stalling. Especially that that they did, that they didn't have a cage. I remember the UFC had a period where like that wall and stall was hugely popular, and I was just hating that. When um, I reckon it was like before, like around the time that Gray Maynard was the lightweight champion, but uh, yep. like so many fights were just people leaning on people on the cage for round after round. And that couldn't happen in Pride, obviously, because of the rope. So I yeah, think that, cr- that created yeah. a lot less wall oh, wrestling. Yeah. yeah, and people just putting people on the ground and stomping on their face. <laughs> obviously, a lot more entertaining. Yeah, 100%. Uh, so was is ISA health, was ISA health or is ISA Health a BJJ gym or is it an MMA gym? Um, they're a bit of everything. They do jiu-jitsu. They did um, MMA and self-defense. Uh, I know that they still have fighters uh, who fight fairly frequently, like Dan Curry. Um, Shane Mitchell, who also trains out of there, so they're still they're still doing MMA and they're still um, in the jiu-jitsu scene. I know that yep. definitely. Yep. So, what made you, I guess, want to pursue more jiu-jitsu than, uh, I mean, more jiu-jitsu than MMA? I was better at jiu-jitsu and I had okay. more fun doing it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I did MMA, I did striking, I did the whole lot, but it was jiu-jitsu was definitely my passion. Um, I was better at it, and you always tend to gravitate towards things that you're better at. So, uh, yeah, I. I was able to throw myself at it more. I found that was what I really enjoyed doing the most. Um, so, yeah, it was... That's cool. So, I'm going to ask you questions from, like, where I'm at in my journey, and maybe you can reflect on them where you would have been in your journey at the time. Yep. Uh, so, you know, just being, like, a new blue belt, like, uh, I guess now I'm looking at people that I look up to in Jiu-Jitsu, right? And 
you maybe try and emulate styles. You see somebody have a style that you're like, oh, that person's got maybe some of my average attributes. I can try and mimic that. Who are people that maybe you were looking up to uh, in your early days of jiu-jitsu? Um, man, in my early days of jiu-jitsu, uh, who was really popular? I'm trying to think. I, I remember having uh, off of one of my friends, he, would give, he gave me a hard drive with a bunch of like Japanese jiu-jitsu, like uh, Imanari's leg lock instructionals oh nice and i remember like they were zero zero percent translation zero percent english and just trying to watch him and just okay, emulate just what he was yep. doing yeah so that's how i started to learn how to leg lock so imanari was a huge influence um in terms of what i started watching from an instructional point of view um who else was really popular back then um Hafa mendez and g mendez were really uh, the best of the best at the time same with uh, Andre Gaval so yeah those sort of guys um, I'm trying to think of anything else who else YouTube wasn't as prevalent back then as well so um, in 2008 2009 we didn't really have as much uh, access to the online content that's available now which is awesome that it's so readily how much available. of a game changer is that do you oh, think? it's awesome it's awesome uh, it's a it means that like uh, anyone can access the best techniques that exists, you know, you can go and get a Craig Jones instruction online, uh, drill it with a friend, or Danaher, or any of the top tier guys, JT Torres. Um, BJ Fanatics is a game changer in terms of that. Uh, obviously, it's still important to train normal, like not normally, but like, um, you know, uh, at realistic, we have a coach and have an academy where you train at, but online resources are great like i recommend anyone that kind of has an understanding of what they're doing start watching them because it's a quick way to really self-direct your own learning as well uh learning how to learn is a really important concept and i think it's really good to be able to self-direct your own learning to an extent i think that's such a unique thing uh, maybe it's not unique to jiu-jitsu and maybe like we can talk about that a little bit but i've noticed that that is something that is very that i've seen in jiu-jitsu that i think is unique to it like uh, there's definitely seems to be like maybe when people do advance better they do have that understanding of like um, you take kind of command over like okay I need to get better at this thing and you know it's on you to make the best out of every role that you yep. can right like because you could I guess just always do the same thing that you're good at but I guess it takes that like under maybe innate understanding of how to learn and how to get better at skill by choosing to do like maybe working on positions that you're not good at or getting yourself into more bad positions rather than just always being in good positions. 100%. It's fine to come in and kick everyone's ass using your A game, but that's not going to evolve all other aspects of your game. You're just going to get really good at a really specific skill set. So if you can understand how to learn, and that could be something like maybe your escapes are not great or maybe um, you know, you're bad from a specific position and try to work your way there in rounds and then try to get more time in, you're going to quickly find that you're able to evolve your game at a much higher pace than everyone else. Like, uh, so for instance, one week I might be teaching close guard, um, but if you're, if you're like trying to work on something separate and you're doing your own learning at the same time, um, you're obviously going to excel at a quicker pace, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Um, do, is that something that everybody eventually has that moment, that light bulb moment in Jiu-Jitsu with, or is that something that doesn't, doesn't necessarily uh, happen to everyone? I guess it depends on how much you're invested into the sport as well and uh, learning. Like, it's the same thing. Like, people ask me often, like, should I take notes after classes? Uh, and I'm like, you know, it's up to you. Uh, I personally have never taken a single note in my entire life. Note-taking for me makes Jiu-Jitsu a chore. It makes it something that I don't want to do. 
so I've never been someone to take notes, but I know that some people learn a lot better and retain knowledge if they write it down. So I would never disparage people from taking notes. It's purely up to how you want to do it. Um, so someone that just kind of does jiu-jitsu casually, just wants to come to two classes a week, get some fitness in, you know, get a few um, hard rolls in, maybe even compete, um, but they don't want to go out and like have to find tutorials, you know, spend yeah. eight hours listening to a tutorial and maybe find someone to drill it with. They'll still do fine, but um, yeah, someone that wants to take it fairly seriously, learn the cutting edge techniques beyond what I'm teaching that week, um, yeah, they might jump in and buy all the instructions and start learning them, but it's based on everyone's individual journey and what they want to get out of the sport, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, I just, I don't know, I'm not sure if it's, if this is something that happens in lots of different uh, types of squ- skill acquisition type sports, but in jiu-jitsu, that's definitely something that I've I perceived like, uh, you know, when you first start out, your your whole question is like, how do I get better at this thing? And then you observe other people, and you know, you notice some people progress faster, or, or you know, you try and look break down all the different methods that people might have. I was a fucking spastic when I first started. I remember that much. I was, uh, I had like one goal: go as hard as I can, go as quick as I can, and just, yeah. Uh, I remember being the typical white belt spaz uh, when I first started. Well, it's, it's probably hard not to for every white belt yeah. to be that. Like, because, yeah, I don't know, I remember, like, I remember the first time that I decided to come back to doing this sort of stuff, and every literally every person in the room can kick your ass. Yeah. And all you have is, like, your maybe some athleticism you have, like, so that's the only tool you have available to you. It, it's, probably, it's probably rare to find white belts that don't just, that have control. Would I be wrong? Uh, yeah, it's um, pretty rare. Most people will, like when put under a lot of pressure, resort back to, like, whatever athleticism strength they can use to get out of a bad situation. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with it, but if you were two years into your jiu-jitsu journey and you still didn't know anything except for full power, maybe there's nothing wrong with how you're going about your learning. Yeah. Uh, what do you think is one of the most important things that helps uh, or makes a difference in people's, like, jiu-jitsu journey? Um, like, would you say that it's the consistency to it? Would you say it's the intensity at which they're applying like their training, uh, would you say it's the environment, uh, like under where they're training, or if you're in a, in a room where people are, um, you know, challenge you more, challenge you less? Uh, it's a combination of all those things, I reckon, hey. Um, you can get good. Uh, I think, I'm pretty sure, I'm probably misquoting who it was, but I think it was Henzo Gracie who was saying that he was had his most development when he moved to uh, America to teach, and he was just training with, like, white belts and a few scattered purple belts because he was able to evolve his game by, like, implementing things on newer people. Um, so you can get better training with people who are worse than you. Um, not worse, that's probably not the best way of putting it, but... Maybe not at your own skill yeah, level. Yeah, not at your skill level. Um, but, yeah, it's a combination. You probably want to be in a... I think, first and foremost, you need to be training somewhere where you actively want to show up. So it has to be an environment that you like. If it's a chore to, oh, shit, i got to go to jiu-jitsu tonight because you feel compelled to, um, you're probably already off, in a, off to a bad start. So first and foremost, you have to be training somewhere where you actually enjoy it and have fun. Secondly, you, um, you need to ideally have uh, a broad group of people that you can train with, uh, bigger people, smaller people, people who are better than you, people who are at the same level, of you, level as you, and people who are worse than you. If you're a white belt, and you're only training with black belts, for instance, it might seem like you'd level up heaps quickly. You might get defensively good fairly well, but you're not going to realistically be able to implement much in terms of offense, so you'd not really start to evolve your game. You need to practice with people who are 
of a lesser skill level where you can really control the round who are the same skill level where you can sort of like test your ability and people who are better than you so you can sort of test your defenses and survivability so yeah it's a, uh, it's the whole thing you need everything yeah 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 100 percent um when people come into uh, like what i'm trying to ask uh how what's the percentage in your opinion or like out of 10 people that start jiu-jitsu how many of them end up sticking with it man i don't even know uh not as many as you'd think um and how do you deal with that as a as a coach and as a gym owner like what are the frustrations of that i don't get frustrated by people leaving um because for me obviously this is my life to an extent as i'm a gym owner but like i fully understand that you know it's just a maybe a phase or something someone does for a while and then life commitments get in their way um which is completely understandable so uh it doesn't really frustrate me when people leave um i think that's just a normal part of life like i used to play basketball um but if and i stopped playing basketball i'd, I'd kind of look at my coach a little bit weird if all of a sudden he hated me for quitting basketball yeah. just because I didn't want to play anymore. So yeah, um, as long as you've got a healthy amount of new students coming in um, and you kind of keep your levels, uh, your, your membership base going well, it's not really an issue. Um, but yeah, not everyone's going to get to black belt. Uh, people do it for a phase, people do it for a year, people might do it for 10 years and quit. It's kind of, yeah. What, where, where is the point where most people often quit? Blue belt. That's the running joke that you get your blue belt and you leave. Because yeah. <laughs> it takes, it's it's like two years to get your blue belt in jiu-jitsu realistically. One and a half to two years uh, of serious training, which is in most martial arts, how long it takes to get your black belt. So people get their blue belt and they're like, this, bam, that's their big accomplishment. And that's what they were kind of hanging around in the later parts of their white belt for, just getting that next level. And then when they get that, they're like, uh, I don't know if I want to do this for another two years to get my purple belt. And now, now, I guess this is where the, maybe the helpful tip would be to somebody listening. Like, obviously, you went all the way. What did you think when you got your blue belt? Because so obviously, you have the mindset that it required to keep going past that zone where most people quit. Yeah, um, there's nothing wrong with quitting the sport if you don't like it anymore. Like, honestly, it's something that I just keep kept loving. So it was a no-brainer, just keep going. I loved competing, so... To me, getting my blue belt just meant it opened up a whole new bunch of challenges in terms of competition. So instead of fighting white belts, I was fighting blue belts all of a sudden. And then the next belt, purple belt, I'm like, cool, now you have to fight purple belts interstate, and, uh, sorry, locally and interstate. So from a competition mindset, like a, a, an enjoyment level, I never even considered quitting the sport ever. So yeah, but had it been something that I stopped liking, I obviously would have quit. Yeah. yeah. I think there is also like, um. I'm not sure if other people go through this, but I definitely had that moment where I realized, oh, wow. Like, <laughs> I kind of realized I'm like, there is so much to go. Oh, it's a never-ending journey, yeah. man. There's, I, I don't know. Every, no one knows everything. Uh, you forget more than you'll ever learn, if that makes sense yeah. in this sport. So yeah. if you're trying to go from a completionist point of view, you'll never, you'll never achieve that target because you'll never know everything and you'll never be good at everything. So... Yeah, don't chase the end goal. Just keep having fun every day. And that's my advice if you want to stay at this sport. Um, enjoy the journey. That's cliche as that fucking yeah, sounds. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Now, uh, the next question I have is, like, I guess in terms of, like, belts and that sort of stuff, like, um, uh, you know, there's different, I guess, criteria for, like, what each belt kind of, like, implies. But, like, I guess from you, like, what do you see each belt represent? Or what has each belt maybe meant to you as you've gone through that journey? Um, belts, man, uh, that, that's a hard one because 
everyone sort of gets better at different rates, etc. But like, once again, you don't want to, if you get too entrenched in focusing on just like the next belt, the next belt, the next belt, it's not, you, once again, you might not, you might start hating the journey, etc. So to me, it just means that a really, if from white to blue, you've usually been training one and a half for two years. By then, you should be better than most of the white belts in the room. Um, now, there are things to take into consideration, like, you know, if you're 60 years old, you obviously might not have the physical attributes of a 20-year-old. So those things are taken into consideration. But, yeah, you should have – it's such a broad, broad way of looking at it, but you should have a fairly large amount of skills amassed. Um, you should be beating most of the white belts. You should be pushing the blue belts, um, and that's generally the criteria. Uh, competition – results obviously if you're a competitor you should be doing fairly well in that regard but that's also a separate thing because i've seen some great grapplers um who in the gym will destroy most people but the second they step out on the mats competitions is a whole different skill set so they just kind of shit the bed in terms of that so competition results aren't always an indicator as well but how much do you feel though competing can help the person in their jiu-jitsu journey I treat it the same as I treat jiu-jitsu. If you love jiu-jitsu and you hate competing, competing is a chore, it makes you hate the lead up to a fight, uh, you hate the feeling of going out there, then don't do it. Like uh, The reason that I competed is because I love doing it and I love the feeling of winning. Um, losing sucks, obviously, but you learn a lot from it as well. Um, but to me, uh, I think it's good that everyone can, that trains a sport competes once so they understand what it's like, uh, the difference of... Uh, a role in the gym versus like you know being out there and having the adrenaline dump having your legs feel like you got concrete slabs cemented to them etc but um if you don't love it um give it a few shots and if it's not for you there's nothing wrong with just training in the gym um but yeah yep uh what do you as a, maybe as a coach over the last uh you know the time that you've been coaching like what do you view as the thing that um makes somebody like uh, good at this skill of jiu-jitsu so the, i'll give you more context than this so uh i've been coaching like cross the sport of crossfit for yep. a long time and um like i got it down to for someone to be good at the thing they need to have like a certain level of selfishness yep to be able to like and i don't mean that in a bad way i just mean that they need to have the personality type where they will prioritize like training over relationships training you know like to meet like their work life because if their person doesn't have that, like all those other things will get in the way. And over the years, right, like that's almost a trait that I would look for, like in athletes. Like, do yeah. they have like the selfish trait? Do they have like these? So I guess in jujitsu, what are some of the things that you kind of look for? You now, you pretty much now that um, you pretty much got it precisely correct there. The more time you put in, obviously, the better you're going to get. So if you were training six days a week, and on maybe three of those days you were training twice a day you're obviously going to excel quicker than someone who's training twice a week. Um, going, doubling down on that again, if you're training every day of the week, some days twice a day, uh, and then in your spare time, watching instructionals, thinking of uh, moves, you know, watching high-level competition, um, breaking down matches, you're obviously going to get better quicker. So it's just a time investment. The more time that you invest training and learning, the quicker that you're obviously going to get better than everyone else. Um, the less time, Unless you're some sort of uh, freak athlete, obviously the slower your development's going to be. So the more you put in, the more you get out. Pretty much, it, it's really simple. The, 
it comes down to that basically. Do you see a lot of people overthink that at the start? As in what? Like, do you see like when you maybe tell that to someone who's new to it, like, do you see them overthink it, or do you see that people often just listen to that and they're like, okay, I'll be here as much as I can? It it sort of varies from person to person. I usually tell most new people that when they start, because it is man, it's over, it's overwhelming when you come to your first class because it's such a foreign thing. Like everyone kind of knows from a striking point of view how to throw a punch, but everything on the ground is so your instincts tell you to do the wrong thing like poster on someone's face to push them away can get your arm out etc so when new people come in i let them know hey there's a steep learning curve like it will take you two months approximately before you even feel like you kind of understand what you're doing in a free roll um but don't stress that that happens with everyone that starts so i find that new people quickly get overwhelmed and they're like, I don't know how to do anything from anywhere yet. And I'm like, yep, that's completely normal. And it's going to be like that for a few months. After two months, that's usually when I find that people have an understanding of like most base positions and free rolling becomes a lot easier for them. But it's a fucking steep learning curve this sport has. And that's the time that people are going to quit the most, like during that first one to two months when they're just like, I don't understand what's happening. I have no idea. They don't even understand what they don't know. There's an unconscious incompetence sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. We're going to take a small break here. We'll come back and I'll keep asking some more questions then. No worries. And we are back. Um, all right. The next question that I have for you is kind of relating, just wanting to pick your brain on how you kind of like organize your, like your training um, in general in jiu-jitsu. Like you're pretty athletic, you're pretty strong yourself. So um how do you view training when it comes to jiu-jitsu? Like, do you just do jiu-jitsu for it? Do you do other things? I do. Uh, I lift as well. Um, <laughs> I always say that, you know, technique overcomes power, but power and technique overcomes technique. So if you have two evenly matched athletes from a technical point of view, if one of them is a strong as hell motherfucker who can lift like 200 kilos, he's probably going to use that with his technique to overcome the opponent that just has technique. So I think it's, if you're doing this seriously, you got to be fairly athletic as well. So, yeah, I do a combination of my own learning where I'll watch instructionals. I kind of watch less instructionals more now. I just, like, kind of watch, say, the Worlds, for instance, yeah. uh, my favorite fighters, and then see what they're doing in their actual matches and kind of just reverse engineer it and practice it when I'm training with my friends and stuff like that. Um, and I also lift and then, obviously, train twice a day, every day, pretty much, jiu-jitsu. Okay. Um, so let's go into the lifting sort of stuff. Uh, what type of lifting do you normally do? Uh, so pretty simple lifting, like powerlifting based stuff. So my current routine is like, let's say I only lift two days a week. Day A will be, I do uh, work up to my max rep on bench press. So like five sets of five bench press, but it's not always five sets of five. Like when I get to like 130 or 140, it might only be three reps. Then I'll do five sets of five or whatever my max is on the squat. And then I'll do two or three accessory exercises where it's, you know, four sets of eight to 12 reps. So it could be like uh, weighted chin-ups, dips, pull-ups, bent over rows, bicep curls, um, any configuration of that. And then day B will be the same thing, except with uh, deadlifts instead, working up to my max set in the one to five rep range and military press in the one to five rep range. And then once again, three sets of different accessory exercises, and that could be like you know lat pull down, um, track pull downs, and all that sort of stuff like that. Um, same sort of thing. But I always try to incorporate uh, 
chin-ups, dips, and pull-ups, uh, weighted dips, chin-ups, and pull-ups, I think they're the best accessories. Yeah, have you found that just more translation with like weighted bodyweight movements than just purely weighted movements? I think it's a combination of both. Like, I have my favorite exercises. Um, I probably, like, for the amount of time that I've been lifting, I should probably know more about lifting than I do, but... For me, it always was secondary to jiu-jitsu. I just you've, you've chosen all the right movements to do, so yeah. I, think, I think you're on the right track. Yeah, um, it just it's hard because like you, ca- I want like from an ego point of view and a narcissistic point of view, I want to be stronger. But like, let's say I'm lifting on a Tuesday and I've just been, you know, maybe I've just done like two back-to-back rounds with Declan and I'm absolutely fucking destroyed. And I go to the gym, I know I'm not about to push massive numbers. So like, you you kind of if your main focus is on jiu-jitsu. You're always bashed and beat up, so you're never going to progress as much as someone who purely lifts as well. And I understand Yeah, that. of course. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, um, there's only so much your joints can take yep. and your joints get the fuck beat out of them in jiu-jitsu. Correct. Uh, what have been some things, because I guess this is like a really um, important question that I think often doesn't get asked from people. So I think a lot of the times when we see someone who's successful at a thing, we only think about what they're doing now, but we, I guess we don't think about what got them to where they're at. So, how is your tra- how is your training that training that you do outside of jiu-jitsu changed over time? Has it changed? And yeah. what what have you taken out and what have you added in? Um, man, it hasn't really changed. Okay, hey? I was kind of doing the same sort of lifting when I started, and I'm okay. kind of still doing it now. I think it's important. I think lifting's super underrated in jiu-jitsu. Uh, I think what it does is it gives you a stronger I think it's injury prevention realistically. Uh, obviously, it helps to be strong, but I think just doing heavy weights makes you less prone to getting injured. So for me, I kind of chalk up the fact that I've been lifting heavy as the reason why I don't often get injured. I've been doing this for 13 years now, and the only real injury I've had is when I tore my pec major off the bone, and that's that was a freak accident. Shit happens. Um, but that's one proper injury in 13 years, so I've yeah. been pretty lucky. No, that's good. Uh, it's uh, maybe also just um, have you learned not to overdo the gym stuff as well as the jiu-jitsu? Was there a time when you did too much of it and you kind of learned what the right amount was? Uh, <laughs> no, I'm always... Uh, I, I'd say overtraining. Yeah, sorry. I'll start, that, I'll start that whole answer again. There was a while that I was definitely overtraining. I was doing too much uh, in terms of lifting and uh, it was affecting my ability to jiu-jitsu. So obviously the focus was on jiu-jitsu. So... I backed off how many days I was lifting. I was lifting five days a week for a while. Um, and, uh, sorry, four or five, yeah, four or five days a week. So I kind of tried to just break it down the core movements that you need to get strong and try to do it over two to three days rather than doing so much lifting. Because obviously whenever you lift, you're tearing like uh, minuscule fibers in your muscles that need to be repaired. So when you're lifting and then doing when you're lifting every day and doing like two jiu-jitsu sessions a day, the recovery never really happens. So you're always just in a state of constant state of being fucked. So yeah, yeah. That's not <laughs> ideal. Uh, and what about like aerobic training? Did you ever add in like any extra cardio or did you find that what you were doing in jiu-jitsu was enough? So I used to do a fair bit of cardio. Like uh, I did interval training before I was like really doing... Uh, so like when I was working, sometimes I wouldn't always be able to train every day. So... I would do skipping, uh, I'd do, uh, what, what was my, uh, I'd do 15 minutes, 30 seconds, as hard as I could, so 30 seconds, 100% capacity, 30%, 50, 30 seconds, 50% capacity for 15 minutes, 
and then I do a five minute break and then do Tabata intervals, which is 20 seconds at 100% capacity, 10 seconds rest for eight, four eight minutes. Seconds. Yeah, yep. four minutes, yeah. Um, and that was the cardio that I did. But when I started like realistically always doing two sessions a day, I just completely got rid of all forms of cardio and jujitsu was my cardio. <laughs> which I think is, for anyone listening to this, like jujitsu is definitely enough cardio yeah. if, you're, if, you're, um, if, you're, if you're training it a lot. Running, I don't think is great for... I don't think running is really good accompaniment. At, uh, it doesn't accompany jiu-jitsu very well because already your knees are already taking a fairly big bash in doing yeah, jiu-jitsu. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely, sm- I think, um, things that you can do that are a bit smarter, yeah. like on, on your joints and stuff. Uh, what have been some training modalities that you've tried that you decided to throw away, that you just didn't like the accompaniment of them into jiu-jitsu? Um, that's a tough one. I've... We'll come back to that one because I mean, most of the stuff that I was doing 10 years ago I'm still doing now okay. so I kind of I don't want to say no definitely definitely don't want to say perfected it but I figured out what worked for me fairly quickly on in yep. my uh, journey during like starting to train and compete so yeah yeah I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to think I, I things that I regret having not added earlier uh, things like recovery okay so as I've gotten older I'm like ah like when I was 22, 23, you could train as much as I could train as much as I want and do as much lifting it like, and really feel no negative side effects. Now, if I don't do sauna, if I don't take an Epsom salt bath, if I don't do ice bath, if I don't do stretching, like I'll pull up like shit and I'll wake up in the middle of the night with my shoulders locking up and stuff like that. So, how often are you implementing some of these recovery sessions? I do something based on recovery every day now. Yep. So whether that'll be like a, a proper, like after I've done two sessions, I'll stretch my shoulders and neck and back out, which are my main areas of like stiffness. Um, or I'll do a sauna three times a week, uh, Epsom salt bath, um, ice bath. So usually for every day of training, I try to add one recovery session in as well. And like I said, for me, recovery is either stretching or yoga, um, Epsom salt baths, uh, sauna, or ice baths. Um, so yeah, so every every session, sorry, so for every day that I try to train, I try to do one recovery thing as well. If you could, because sometimes like recovery can be limited to like your accessibility to the thing, or mm-hmm. um, I don't know, like ice baths just aren't always like the easiest thing to like organize, right? Yep. Uh, if you could choose one of those that you you could just have available to you all the time, what would you choose? It would be the sauna if I could have it available, but I think realistically Epsom salt baths are the best thing yep. I've added for my recovery. I can't believe how well they've helped me relax, go to sleep at night, um, loosen up my muscles, take away knots in my body. I can't get on board Epsom salt baths enough. I fucking hate doing them. There's nothing worse than in like the summer running like a hot ass bath, yep. dumping Epsom salt in there, and you're already sweating before you hop in, jumping in the bath and just feeling like you're being toasted alive. But man, the after effect, like when you get out, you feel like you're high and you just kind of like, I stumbled into the cold shower, turn it on, and it's like basically passed out on the floor. Afterwards, after having gone through 20 minutes of hell, I feel absolutely fantastic. But man, it's hard to <laughs> mentally build yourself up to that. Um. Yeah, yeah, no, I can relate to that. Um, what do you do for recovery? You you lift a lot. You've been in uh, this sort of field for ages. What personally for you? What do you like to do? Um, a few different things. Yeah, look, I think um, yeah, bath, just baths in general, like whether it's uh, with Epsom salts or just 
just doing something that like feels easier in your body. Mm-hmm. Um, just like stretching heaps, like just doing more yoga. Yeah. I think because I did spend so long uh, like pushing really, really heavy weights. Uh, I think I just need a lot more of the complete opposite. Yep. Um, so like, yeah, I've definitely found like the, the more flexible I am. Like there's, there's probably very few times in jiu-jitsu where I'm like, I could be stronger here. It's always like, I can't get my knee up high enough. Yep. And if I did one inch, that would make a difference in me getting my guard back in this position. So I think for me, yeah, just doing things that maybe just are more beneficial to my body. I think um, having like a background in CrossFit where everything is always 100%, probably the opposite. So not training to 100% when I do gym stuff. Yep. Like, um, and even like in jiu-jitsu, like at the start, just my muscles would just tense up really hard. So I think a lot of the time, like I'll be kind of actively trying to I think every person has a different type of athlete in them. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm definitely more of like a sprinter, explosive kind of athlete. So I need to learn to be more like enduring, yep. like naturally. And I think, um, you know, if somebody if somebody was enduring naturally, they probably need to learn to be more explosive in, uh, in nature. So, um, but yeah, definitely like Epsom salt baths. Uh, I, love, I love ice baths. Um, I just don't think <laughs> like sometimes I have the the metal fortitude for them, like when it's colder and stuff like that. Yep. Um, but I think if, if they were available, like uh, I would definitely choose choose something like that. Just I kind of, I guess anything that just shocks your body, like an extreme temperature mm-hmm. and just allows you to find like that sort of like, um, you know, recovery zone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think if it's, if it was uh, financially practi- uh, practical, practical, uh, just massage. I think if, if, if every athlete could get massaged after every training session, like that would, you know, you could train so much harder. Yes, but that would cost about six hundred dollars a week. That's, what, <laughs> yeah. that's what I mean. But uh, if if we, um, you know, it's probably why, like, you know, when you see professional athletes, yeah. like they have those things available to them. Um, yep. I think it's really cool, though. I think in Adelaide, there's starting to be a lot more like recovery centers. There's one right next to me. Oh, that's nice, nice next door. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so uh, yeah, it's it's cool to see that because I think um, I think some of those things will start bringing down the price of of how inaccessible some of these things have been yeah. in the past. Uh, all right, so my next question, um, and I just kind of <laughs> got uh, sidetracked in my head with training stuff. Um, uh, yeah, like I guess flexibility and that sort of stuff. I know that um, I've met some people in jiu-jitsu who like preach flexibility and I've met other people that seem a bit more blase about it. Where do you stand on that? Uh, I think you have to be as flexible as you need to be. You want to, that's such a complicated one. Um, flexibility, you don't want to be too flexible in that uh, what did someone say? You want flexibility. Sorry, no, let me start that again. You want mobility and stability to be sort of combined, so like you're not injuring yourself. Basically, um, you never, you can never really end up being too flexible as long as you're stable in your joints and stuff like that. That's good. Um, I don't do too much in terms of flexibility. I've always been somewhat naturally flexible, and just training jujitsu and inverting so much, it sort of increased that flexibility. That being said, that's one thing if you ask me what I probably need to add to what I do right now it's a lot more yoga a lot more flexibility based stuff so yeah has there ever been a period where you've included that into your training yeah I used to do yoga a lot more frequently and it helped a lot but then I always felt like I was taking up another sport and I'd like do three sessions a week I'm like fuck this is actually heaps hard and that was then making me more tired and yeah is that also just to do with like you mentioned it before? You have that personality type where you all in or all out. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I had that same thing. My um, my girlfriend Steph, she 
is into yoga and um, every time she's invited me to go with her to a, um, to a yoga studio, uh, I'm just like, I can see why people get obsessed with this. Yeah. Because it's like the challenge of like, I want to get better at it. And it's like, I need to stay away. <laughs> I don't need another hobby. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like taking up another, another sport. Like people think that going to a yoga session is nice and relaxing and, uh, you know, br- uh, cruising gets you very calm. But far out, holding some of them stances for so long, it just hurts. Yeah, especially if you're, if you're not used to it. Like, it just mm. it works those one, that one muscle that you just haven't developed yet. Yeah, and if I'm not instantly good at something, I quit it. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool, all right. Um, now, I want to move the conversation maybe to, uh, I guess, what, what it's been like to be a gym owner. Mm-hmm. Um, we're definitely, you're definitely in the situation now where you're a gym owner in a very challenging time for gyms. Yep. Um, I guess, yeah. What what has it been like to have your your own academy here in Australia? Was it has it been as good as you imagine it to be? Has it been? There's been lots of challenges. Um, there's been a few challenges, mainly around COVID. Uh, I opened up in 2020, uh, and I think we're open for two months before the, we had the shot. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, damn. Yeah, uh, before COVID kicked in. Uh, not not the most ideal thing in the world, but um, I don't look at it like as a gym owner, I'm any, like, everyone's been feeling it in some form or the other. I don't think I'm in a unique scenario. I think hospitality, if you own, like, a cafe, if you own a restaurant, you probably have it worse off because at least it's, I, I can kind of, like, strip it back to just me running the show at the end of the day. Um, to open up a cafe, you need to have, like, 10, 20 staff working. So if you're, like, restricted to one person per seven square meters, it's almost not realistic that you can even feasibly run your business with that sort of uh, meterage etc so yeah it's been challenging that we got hit with uh, COVID during our opening period um, and we've just been hit with it again having it come to SA for the first time but shit happens we'll get over it Uh, yeah that was probably the biggest challenge having to stop start stop start over and over again gain momentum uh, and then have to close a new wave would come would have to close um also, from like my students' point of view, like trying to compete in the Pan Packs, trying to go to the Nationals, having so many competitions delayed, delayed again, uh, it's kind of hard for me to see someone get ready for something just to have it delayed or cancelled, and then they get ready for it again and it's delayed or cancelled, and you can see kind of the, the, fl- the flame to wanting to prepare properly just kind of fade over time, because, yeah. What a, um, outside of COVID, what are some of the uh, maybe... Uh, unexpected challenges that come along with running an academy? There hasn't really been any. It's been pretty smooth so far. Um, nah, that whole process... Look, if that's your truth, that's awesome. That's I'm just that's trying great. to think. No, that's, uh, that's awesome. That's good to hear, man. Yeah, it was pretty much... The good thing about opening a jiu-jitsu school is you need, like, basically two things. Someone to teach a class and an open space with mats. So... Um, I'm not going to lie from like a business point of view. It's not the most complicated business to run. But I guess the complicated part is having invested that amount of time to get good enough to be able to teach. So um, that was the hard part. Uh, opening, the, opening the school was the easiest part. Having to like devote 10, 13 years into getting to black belt and competing, that was the hard part. So making the gym is the easy part. That's the easy part. <laughs> it's almost like the reward at the, at the end of it. Yeah, knock a wall down. Um, lay some mats on the floor, put a sign out the front, and you're good to go. Good to go. <laughs> uh, when you first started it, did you always have like being a black belt in mind? 
or what was your start your thought about jiu-jitsu when you first started with it um i started teaching properly at brown belt and i felt that was i felt i was ready to teach then um different people teach at different belt levels i have people here that are black belt coaches um we're starting morning classes and i've got purple belts teaching that as well so um i just wanted to be better i i I just wanted to be really good when I started coaching, if that makes sense. So I felt more comfortable really diving in at brown belt, but that was just me personally. If you're comfortable doing it blue belt, go ahead. You can teach beginners fairly efi- efficiently. Um, yeah. 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 I guess it's just different, like depending on where the person's at. Yeah. Um, I always hear stories that back in the day, I guess people would have less, you know, there was less black belts, so there'd be more other colored belts teaching. I was learning from, well, yeah, exactly that. When I first started, I was learning from a blue belt. Uh, because the sport was so new. I remember when I first started, everyone would say, uh, I'd tell people, oh yeah, I've started doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and no one would have the slightest clue on what it was and I kind of had to explain. It's kind of like uh, Olympic style wrestling, but except when you take the person down, you can choke them or bend something the wrong way till they tap. Uh, now, luckily, you tell someone, oh, I teach Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and even if it's like someone so far removed from having knowledge of the sport, everyone these days has an understanding of what Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is, so... Yeah, it's a much easier time. Um, now, I guess what is what is your goal now with with your jujitsu? Like, is it to uh, continue competing? Is it to uh, like keep going with the school? What is what's your like next ten year goal or five year goal? Um, to continue competing myself, I've got a lot lined. I had a lot lined up last six months, but most of it fell through during, uh, due to COVID stuff. So. To continue to be an active competitor myself, um, I'm fighting on the M16 Open. I don't know when, uh, in 10 days from now, I think. So uh, that's my first one in a while because um, most of it got cancelled. I'm doing BOA on the 13th or 14th of February. Um, I'm doing the Nationals on the 26th or 23rd of February. So I've got a lot coming out competition-wise. Uh, from a gym point of view, uh, once again, just expanding the gym as much as possible, as many members as possible, uh, training in a good environment. I would like to have a good competition team as well. Uh, so realistically, having as many of my guys compete as possible is also another thing that I really want to do. Um, I don't push people to compete. Like I said, if you don't want to do it, I'm not going to ever force someone to do that. But uh, we seem to have a fair few of our guys here wanting to compete or coming up to me saying, hey, I see this competition coming up. Can I jump in? I'm like, yep, definitely. So yeah, to have a really strong competition team and taking out those team trophies is also really important to me as well. Yeah, awesome. I think that's uh, probably a good place to leave it, brother. Um, Thank you so much again for sharing your time with me um, and for having this conversation. Uh, Yeah, wish you all the best, obviously. Uh, You have a great, great gym. I love being a part of it. It's a a really good environment for anyone who who is interested in trying jiu-jitsu. Like, uh, I'm probably like every annoying person who's ever started it. All you want to do is try and, like... Get everyone else involved. Get everyone else (laughs) involved into it. Totally not a cult. Uh, Totally (laughs) not a cult. Um, But, yeah, no, it's uh, it's a good time, especially if you like wearing pajamas as well. (laughs) You get to kind of do that too. Uh, Thank you so much. If people want to find out more about you, brother, uh, where can they do so? Uh, Instagram or Facebook. They can either search for Beachside Jiu-Jitsu to see my gym or get to contact me if they want to start training there or my personal account, which is... Lachlan Conway BJJ, I'm pretty sure. Sank along those lines. Nice. Um, I'll make sure I have the links on the Spotify info for you. Um, Awesome. All right, brother. Take care. Thank you for having me on.